well, a few weeks ago, around, I think it was November 2nd, I remember it was very early on in the month, uh, I was in the next, uh, looking for some children's clothes, and the Christmas music uh, came on, and it was like sleigh bells ringing all around us or something like that, and I looked at my watch to check the date, yeah, it was November the 2nd, Halloween was out the way, Christmas is now announced, and it's all, that old thing of, you know, how early can the shops start celebrating Christmas? It's um, it's always a bit of a surprise, isn't it? And you you begin to think about it. It's two months away, but then maybe they've got a point. It does take a little while to prepare and so on. But generally, the trend is to sort of criticise the shops who are kind of commercialising Christmas and announcing it early and so on. But actually, as I was um, looking at this passage, it's kind of struck me that um, there is precedent within the church t- tradition to start thinking about Christmas quite early. Because as you know, we're following the church year. We follow the lectionary in our reading and our readings and our preaching. And as we come to the end of the church year, we're very nearly at the end of the liturgical year. The readings begin to get a little apocalyptic. <laughs> well, they are apocalyptic, not a little apocalyptic. Uh, we begin to think about the end and we really begin to think about the second coming of Christ. And Advent isn't just about preparing for Christmas. It's about preparing our hearts to receive Christ thinking about his return as well as his uh, incarnation. And really this passage is about that. It's about getting us ready, thinking about um, our lives in the light of the return of Christ, in the light of when he returns, it's going to be like the sun has risen to full height and we'll see everything as it is. And I think that's really what comes through in what Jesus says to, actually, uh, to this group of people some of his disciples, here he's saying really that there's going to be a point in the future where this thing that seems very significant now is going to be put into perspective. And I think that's what God would do for us this morning. He'd remind us of that true perspective that we get as we reflect on where everything is headed, where our lives are headed, uh, the significance of Christ's return and all those things. So God would remind us of the temporality and the temporal temporary nature of this world. The temple to the Jewish people, to these uh, disciples, some of them probably not that familiar with it, being from Galilee, maybe they only saw it every now and then. The temple was this incredibly imposing structure. The gates were gilded with gold, there were giant columns, pillars that if you get three men arm to arm linked, they could just about encompass the, the pillars. There were giant carved clusters of grapes uh, which uh, was the size of a man hanging from the ceiling. It's an incredible place. Some of the building blocks were, um, they th- um, I think, 12 or 14 metres uh, in length. Uh, and some of them are still there to this day. We can see the foundation of the temple. It's an incredibly imposing structure. Even the Romans, who were you know, uh, extremely opulent in their tastes, were kind of blown away by the, the Herod's temple in Jerusalem. It was an incredibly imposing structure. And you, so the, the feeling, of the, it's a very natural feeling that these disciples had as they were stood in the courts of the temple to say, isn't it amazing? Isn't it incredible? Isn't it significant? And Jesus tells them no, in one sense, actually. It's very, very, very temporary. And actually, God would expand our vision to, um, to, to apply that to our own lives. The Bible, uh, God's word, speaks very clearly about this, actually, that there's going to be a day when the, the sun and the moon will seem temporary. Those things that are, are most permanent in our lives. The, the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. The earth will wear out like a garment. And I wonder if, I wonder how 
permanently you see your life, how you approach the things in your life that seem like fixed structures? Are there things in your life that seem permanent to you that would shake you if they were lost? I think God would speak to us about those things. Or maybe he'd speak to you in the midst of a sense of loss this morning as well. Maybe there are things that are fading, things that are changing, uh, surprising things in your life that are shaking you, and God would speak to you about those too. So Jesus speaks prophetically. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking, first of all, very clearly about the destruction of the temple. Just 40 years or so after Jesus' death in 70 AD, uh, this prophecy that Jesus gave came true. Um, he says that not one stone will be left on another. And in 70 AD, the Romans sacked the city of Jerusalem and they razed the temple to the ground. And it's just this absolutely devastating historical event. I mean, in- incredibly significant. It's very hard for us to get our, our minds around uh, what this meant. But to the disciples at the time, that would have seemed unthinkable. Now it's ancient history. That's something of what God wants to speak to us about. You know, things that seem impossible one day will be ancient history. They could hardly imagine that it was about, that that would have happened. But then the scene expands. They ask him, when will these things take place? And instead of saying, well, in about 40 years, suddenly Jesus is zooming far, far into the future. What, when will these things happen and what will be the sign they're about to take place? And then he begins to talk about, it seems, about the very end. Uh, watch out that you're not deceived. Many will come in my name claiming I am he. Well, around the time of the destru- destruction of the temple, there were lots of people who were claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to, uh, uh, to be sent from God, and they were trying to lead the people astray, actually. But we also know that's not the end of it. We also know that through history, there have also been people who have uh, taken this identity as Messiah and tried to lead God's people astray right through to the 20, 21st century. There are people claiming those titles. Some of them very silly, and hardly anyone pays any attention, and some of them are taken very seriously, which is a bit of a tragedy, really. We see that in the various cults that arose over the last 200 years. Many will come in my name, uh, saying I'm he. They will say the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. So what are we talking about? Are we talking about the destruction of Jerusalem? Or are we talking about the end of the world? Which is it? Is Jesus confused? Bible scholars get very confused <laughs> over this passage because they want to know. They, they think Jesus has got one thing in mind. That's not, that's not how the Holy Spirit works. That's not how prophecy works. Then he says, nation will rise against nation. Okay, we're on the big scale still. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Have those things happened yet? Yes? Maybe? No? I don't know, actually, to be honest with you. Every, pretty much every generation since Christ has believed, has seen famines and wars and revolutions and signs in the heavens and earthquakes and said, this is it, we must be near the end. I'm fairly convinced that we're a lot closer to the end than we were. <laughs> but that's just logic. <laughs> How close? How bad will it get? Honestly, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it would be presumptuous. I think it would be presumptuous for me to say from the pulpit what I thought. But maybe in conversation we can talk more openly. 
Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, great signs. Okay, then verse 12. Before, before all this, they will lay hands on you and they'll persecute you. They'll deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you'll be brought before kings and governors and all, all on account of my name. Well, okay, now where are we in history? Who is he talking to? These disciples, Luke tells us in his second book, in the book of Acts, were, lit, were brought before kings and governors and all on account of his name. They were arrested and brought before the synagogues and they were questioned and imprisoned. And all these things happened to these disciples. So we're talking about 33 to 70 AD now? Or is that a prediction about what will happen to everyone? Actually, it's a prediction about the whole church. And what happened in the early church, if you like, was a pattern of what we're to expect, a growing intensification. And he's talking about the end. So at the end, there will be this great persecution. The Bible, I think, is very, very clear. And historically, Christians have always believed this, that in one sense, the church will get bigger and better somehow, but at the same, same time, there is this growing persecution and purification of the church. There is a great trial to come. So these things do apply to us. So then, when he says, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourselves, yes, he's talking to Peter and John and James and so on, the rest of them. But he's also talking to you and me in our situation right now. Historically, though, uh, in interpreting this passage, many people have really struggled to make sense of Jesus is talking. So the point is this. Jesus is talking about the time after his ascension to the destruction of the temple and all that early part of church history. But he's also talking about everything. (laughs) What about the temple then? When he's talking about the temple, is he only talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? Well, actually, he's still talking about everything. He's still talking about everything. And the thing that helps us to open up uh, that truth is if we begin to get inside, if we begin to understand the way Jewish people at the time understood the temple, what did it signify? It was, of course, the meeting place where God met with man, with mankind, with his chosen people. It was a place of sacrifice, of atonement. But it was also, in the way it was constructed, it was a microcosm, literally a little universe, a microcosm. It was constructed to reflect the created order. So you had the Bronze Sea, which uh, which represents the oceans of the world. You had uh, nature, like I said, these clusters of grapes. You had these great big pillars which represented trees. You had um, uh, the constellations were mapped onto the, uh, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The whole thing was was set up to to mirror the heavens and the earth, the whole of God's creation. Uh, The Holy of Holies was symbolic of the heaven of heavens, God's dwelling place. Um, The historian Josephus writes, parts of the temple were in every every one made to match, uh, to reflect, uh, reflective of the universe. Um, The lamp... Uh, with seven, he says the lamp with the uh, seven lamps on it uh, was representative of the seven visible planets. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's certainly what he thought. So, when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, he's also talking about something that will happen to the cosmos, to the world itself. Can you see that connection? 
He's talking about both things. That's that stepping. He's talking about what happens early on, the destruction in Jerusalem, but he's also talking about the world. And so when we, when he begins to talk about earthquakes and famines and plagues, when we begin to talk about, uh, in, elsewhere in scripture, the, the moon will, uh, the, turn to blood, the stars will fall from heaven. All these things are actually reflective of something that will happen in the created order, in the world that we live in. There is something about the deterioration, the destruction of the world that will precede um, Christ's return that we're to expect. And I think that's really, really helpful for us, tying the temple in to um, the destruction of the temple into the destruction of the world at the end of time is um, really, really helpful for us in our cultural situation right now. I'm just going to use this as an illustration of a bigger point that God wants to speak to us about. But actually, we shouldn't... All these things, these warnings, uh, these reassurances that Jesus gives us, are applicable to the cultural situation we find ourselves in, which is the attack against the created order. That should not surprise us that the world around us is rebelling against the way God has made things. Now, that's always been true. For 2,000 years of church history, we've understood that, you know, various people have interpreted this as applying. But what makes that especially clear now is as we, as uh, the human race gets in, incredibly good at technology, at changing things, at mastering the, the world around us, and as it gets increasingly united in its communications, there is a growing realisation that we have an incredible power to transform and overrule the world around us. And we see this in things like, for example, the issue around transgenderism, uh, homosexual marriage, also the way that technology changes our lives and places a barrier between us and the natural world. All these things are happening around us with alarming and increasing speed. Would you agree? That God would say to us in the midst of those things, actually, you shouldn't be surprised that these things are happening. Just like the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, they are partly uh, the work of his enemies. They are the work of the enemies of God. Just like the destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem, they are also under his providential design. They are part of his judgment against the wickedness of the world. And just like the destruction of the Temple, they are... Uh, they open up opportunities for us to be faithful. Um, so God was speaking to that situation, I think. He would say, don't be alarmed when you see these things. Now that's an issue that's very close to my heart. I think it's an issue that's very relevant to all of us in some ways. So we shouldn't be surprised by, if you like, uh, the deterioration of the natural world. We shouldn't be surprised by the, the Amazon rainforest and the, the problems there, pollution, the plastic in the oceans, all those things. Why? Because the Bible sort of predicts it. It, do, it does, indirectly. Now we can, we can begin to see that. We, shouldn't, uh, we should expect God's enemies to attack the, the temple, if you like. We should expect that. We should be expect to be caught up in that, just as the early church were brought to trial and to judgment and before kings and governors. So it is that the church will face persecution for standing up for uh, the way things, the way God designed things to be. Does that make sense? Okay, that's an illustration uh, and it's a, a pertinent point. And I'm 
don't intend to go into it into too much uh, more detail today. What does Jesus say in response to these things? What does Jesus say we should do when we see these things around us, whether it's um, literally the temple or whether it's persecution against the church or whether we're in a situation like the disciples face? What should we do? Well, firstly, he says, don't be led astray. Don't be led astray. The floodwaters are rising. You're worried about drowning. A piece of driftwood comes by and you're tempted to grab it. But God has told you there is an ark coming. (laughs) That's what he's saying. He's saying when someone comes along and says, uh, I am Jesus, I know the answer, I I know what to do about this situation. But their words contradict that of Jesus. We know that we don't grab onto that thing. Don't be led astray. Don't grab onto any bit of driftwood. So, yes, as I said, there have been literal messiahs throughout the history of the church. But, But... in a more metaphorical sense, we can also see that again and again the church has been uh, challenged with, from within and without by the, by the temptation to deny the words of Christ, to change our teaching or our doctrine with something like, if, the church, if you don't change, the church won't exist in the next generation. If you don't change your teaching, if you don't change the way you do things, if you don't change your stand on doctrine or morality, where will you be in the next generation? You'll be washed away. And we hear those voices today, don't we? And God would say to us in the midst of those things, whatever the issue, he would speak to us and say, don't be led astray. If it contradicts my word, if it contradicts the things I've explicitly said, then it can't be true. And you know, the one always comes to mind, and I don't mean to pick on a particular religion, but there's one that comes to mind. Jesus says... Um, uh, elsewhere in scripture, he says that when he returns, it will be like lightning in the sky. Everyone will see. And yet there are cults, the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, say that Jesus returned, but invisibly. <laughs> 1914. And I'm going, well, but he... And then in the same passage he says, and some people will say, he has returned. <laughs> but I tell you, when I return, it will be like lightning in the sky. So you've got this, this group of people who claim to be Christians, and they claim that Jesus returned invisibly, even though Jesus said, I will not return invisibly, everyone will see. You know, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? But where does that desire, that, that uh, temptation to, to turn away to this false teaching come from? It comes from a, a, a sense of, gosh, we must be so close to the end. Things are getting so bad. Things have changed so much that there's temptation within us to capitulate, whether it's in doctrine or in morality or something else. And Jesus says, hold firm. What else does Jesus say? Don't be led astray. He says, don't be terrified. Don't be terrified. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples or the early Jewish Christians or just the Jewish people who weren't Christians in 70 AD and try to imagine what the significance of the destruction of the temple. What was that significance? Try to imagine it would have felt like the world was coming to an end. Partly because the temple, as a microcosm, as it represents the whole universe, um, partly because of that, there's this something symbolic going on. The destruction of the temple somehow inherently symbolizes the destruction of the universe. Don't be terrified. God was speaking to our own situations. There's change around us. 
when things happen that are unexpected, when the church is persecuted, when teaching comes up under attack, when morality comes under attack, when the church seems weak and feeble, he'd say, don't be terrified. Don't be afraid. Why? Because he's in charge, isn't he? He's in charge. God is in charge. You know, there's a, a really small point that's just on my mind, and I hadn't prepared in advance, but God laid it on my heart just before the service. That even in our very close to home, even in our own lives, our own uh, health, our own bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, aren't they? And actually just through ill health or through age, we can have this sense of deterioration and dreadful change that is shocking in how suddenly it comes and quite terrifying and sad. It makes us reflect on what we had and how quickly we lost it. And there can be the sense of what is the purpose behind this? And God would speak into that. That's a very real thing for many people. God would speak into that and say, don't be afraid. Don't be terrified. I'm in charge of these things. I've got good purposes in these things. What else does Jesus say? Don't be terrified. Don't be led astray. Well, what's behind that don't be terrified is God is in charge, but it's, it's more than just saying God knows what he's doing. Actually, what he says is, I will give you the words to say. I will give you the words to say. So he's saying to the disciples when they're, brought, when they're arrested and brought before governors and kings and so on, I will give you words to say. But actually, there's a, there's a bigger point. It's not just about being brought into trial. He's saying, in the midst of these things, there is an opportunity to speak the word of God. You see, often we think of um, God's providence a bit like a monologue. It's like God's word. He speaks, we obey, and everything goes smoothly. But actually, God's ordering of our lives is like a conversation. Whatever happens to us, is a, is God, it's, it's like God's speaking. We can trust him, we can rely on him, we know that he's always doing good for us, he loves us, he's our father. But also, because we're his children, it's always an invitation to respond with faith and love. Whatever happens to us. And so if you think about the situation the church is in at the moment, with uh, especially around the issue of sexuality, uh, like I said, uh, human identity and so on, it's such a massive challenge. I don't know if you're aware of how big a challenge it is, especially in the West. Some of you in your jobs and you know, if you're aware of some Christian media around this stuff will know how big a deal it is. And I, for, for my part, you know, it's, it's a particular interest of mine, not just because of the, theologically, but as a pastor of a church, you know, you need to be aware of this stuff. There is a sense of this overwhelming tide of opinion and momentum and so on coming that's almost uh, irresistible. And a sense of doom, almost, really. Temptation to despair. And yet, in the midst of that, there are opportunities coming to minister God's word and to witness to his truth that are incredibly powerful and profound. The witness of the church caring for people who've bought into these lives, to the lonely and their damaged and the broken lives, especially among those who are poor and marginalised, are going to be absolutely incredible in the generation to come. It's going to be us that's picking up the pieces. It's going to be us that's loving the broken and the hurt of those who've been damaged by this destruction of God's temple. God is in charge. So don't be led astray. Don't be terrified. 
God is in charge and he's inviting us to respond with faith. How do we do that? Jesus invites us to think about this heavenly perspective about the end. And he says this really, really strange thing at the end of our reading. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives and friends and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm you will gain life. So they're going to put you to death but not a hair on your head will perish. They're going to put you to death but you'll gain life. Now, I think that's bordering on a paradox, isn't it? A contradiction in terms. They're going to persecute you. It's going to be really bad. They're going to put you to death, but not a hair on your head will perish. What does that mean? What does that mean? Jesus is inviting us in this almost contradictory phrase to begin to see things from heaven's perspective. From a heavenly perspective. He's saying that to the the disciples about the temple. What was the true glory of the Jerusalem temple? Was it the building blocks? Or the gate? Or the grapes? Or the pillars? Or the curtain? Or the altar? I mean, these were incredible things, weren't they? Incredible, incredibly valuable things. Impressive and imposing. Uh, overwhelming things. The temple's true glory was not its architecture or its layout. It was the meeting place of God and man. It was the humility of God, the love of God, condescending, coming down to our level and, and wanting to be in communion with his people. That's what was really valuable, wasn't it? Everything else were secondary. And actually, God kind of warns the Jewish people. He warned David. You know, when David says, I want to build you a temple, he says, well, I'm paraphrasing. Strictly speaking, I don't really need a temple. It doesn't really need a tabernacle. I mean, a tabernacle was enough, a tent in the wilderness. The temptation is that um, we see that we begin to see the temporary glory in the place of the permanent glory. So how do we respond to the situations around us in our own life, in the world, in the church with, in the way that Jesus is inviting us to? We do it by training ourselves to see the true glory of the temple that we're in. Part of our sinful nature, part of the, the way we're wired because we're fallen is that we ascribe too much value to temporary things. We're dazzled by External beauty, beguiled by the weight of things, the shininess of things. We judge things on external appearances. We are drawn to them like moths to a, a candle. Those things are good. Beauty is good and shiny things are good. <laughs> Weightiness is good. You know, the, the temporary glory of the world is a good thing that God has given us. But it's not the end that it's designed for. These things are all supposed to draw us into the love of God. What is the true glory of this life? 
that God has wired us for, that we're built for, we're designed for. The glory of this life is to know the love of God, to know that God loves us and to love him in return and to see that glory in others, in people. And we have to train ourselves to see the world that way. So in everyday situations, we have to recognise those times when we are inordinately attached to comfort or pleasure, ease or possessions. And instead, train ourselves to value eternal things, people, sacrificial love, praise of God, faithfulness to his word. These things don't have the instinctive draw to us that simple worldly pleasures have. Do they? They're hard, but we have to choose again and again to value them. We have to choose again and again to enter into a relationship, to spend time with God, to make sacrificial choices, to give our money away rather than keep it to ourselves, to please others rather than please ourselves. And as we do that, we train ourselves to see the world the way it really is, not to be blown away just by the giant building blocks and the, the, the adornment of the world around us, but to see the world in the light of heaven. So I think God would challenge us this morning about where we're choosing to place our value, how we're choosing to use our time and our resources. It says in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 and 13, talking about the Christian life. Once the foundation of the gospel has been laid, we should build upon this foundation, Paul says. We can build with gold or silver or precious stones or hay, wood, stubble or straw. And he says, every man's work should be made manifest for the day, that's when Jesus returns, will declare it. It will be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work. God will challenge us this morning, very simply. If you want to live in this world with all this change happening around you, the change that's going on in your life, and not be terrified, not be overawed by it, not be led astray, be able to respond with faith and display the glory of God. What are the things in your life that are stopping you from seeing the way the world really is? What are you attaching too much value to? It's not that God is saying these things aren't valuable. He's saying they're temporary. Is there something? Can you think of something? What are the things that you're not placing enough value in? People? Time with God? Sacrifice in one way or another? God would ask us to act. You know, um, historically, the time of Advent has been a time that's sort of been uh, recognised as a kind of mini-Lent. So as we prepare for Christmas, it's been a time of fasting, whereby restricting or abstaining from certain food and other natural good pleasures, good things, we train ourselves and we prepare ourselves to receive Christ. I wonder if just very practically I could... I think there are a few people here this morning that would take up the challenge 
of fasting for Lent, not like a complete water fast. That would be really tough. Although Christmas would be pretty special, I think, <laughs> if you fasted for like 40 days before, <laughs> before Christmas Day. But to sacrifice something, to have one big meal a day, or to give up um, something that is good but is distracting you. What do you think? What do you think about it? Perhaps I could challenge you to, as I seem to do most weeks, to value people during the time of Advent as well, especially. To make a a real effort, because we're talking about things of eternal value, right? So of all the things in the world that will pass away, your brothers and sisters in Christ will not pass away. I challenge you to be extra hospitable, extra time with the people around you for the next five or six weeks or so. So God would train us to see things in this um, eternal way. And I think he would also challenge us to cultivate joy. Again, not a hair of your head will be harmed, even though you're put to death. You'll gain your life, even though you're put to death. There is this paradox. And there's something that might sound a bit controversial, but actually, as the temple was being destroyed, and we talked about how shocking that would have been for the early disciples uh, and for the Jewish people, as the temple was being destroyed, something incredible was happening all around wasn't it? Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. What was he talking about? Yeah, he's talking about his body, wasn't he? He was talking about the church. In the taking away of this incredible, seemingly permanent, glorious structure, God-ordained, God-designed, Amazing thing that had stood there for centuries and centuries as the, the heart of God's presence on earth with so much value. So much, so, uh, the ability to overwhelm and overpower believers and non-believers alike. This incredible thing was to be surpassed by something even more incredible. The glory of God, the presence of God was going to break out from the Holy of Holies, this, the, the hidden place, the heaven of heavens. The curtain would be torn and God's, uh, gospel, his power, his presence, his love would flow out that temple like a river and fill the whole earth. And so while there's this tragedy happening, there is an amazing thing happening at the same time. The church is being born. And the people of Israel who uh, who recognized Christ were caught up in this mixture of incredible lament and yet this amazing new thing that was happening. And God would speak to each one of us about that reality in our lives. He would say to you in your personal situations this morning, where there is tragedy or trial or difficulty, change that is hard to cope with, whether it's physical or emotional or situational, whatever it is. He would say to you, whatever is being taken away, there is joy set before you. What we see in the, in the, the church, the challenges, the, uh, the, the, whatever it is. So some of you may look at the church and think, wow, you know, 50 years ago. I'm not talking about Turner's, I'm talking about the, the church. 
You know, things were so much better this time. You know, our, our love has grown cold, or, or whatever it is, we've lost our way. This is challenges when it comes to the things we believe. The churches around us are all changing their, their, their doctrine and their behavior and all that sort of thing. Whatever is going on, whatever is being taken away, God is preparing something incredible in the future. When we see the world around us, the heavens shaken, the stars falling, marriage being redefined, humanity being redefined, we see God's enemies besieging his temple. We see the people of God attacked. And there will come a day when it seems the church will have lost. There will come a day when it seems we've lost. God has incredible things in store. God would remind us today, whatever we place our value in, all that is good is nothing compared with what is to come. Whatever we lose, think of it as a loan to God. He will repay with Godly interest, magnanimous, bounteous, overflowing. Isn't that an encouragement? What trials do you face? What worries do you have? Personal or global or ecclesial? (laughs) All that is gone will be restored. This life is good, but compared to what God has for us, it's the wilderness compared to the promised land. It's the tabernacle compared to the temple. It's a betrothal compared to a marriage. God has blessed us so much now, even in the midst of these trials, and yet what is to come is unalloyed, wonderful, beautiful, precious joy. What has he got prepared for us? The true temple. Complete Union with Christ. Even the grapes of his wrath will be turned into the wine of the new covenant. The harvest of the earth will be turned into the bread that feeds us at his marriage. The whole of creation will be the wedding feast of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.